Okay, uh, that brings me to uh, just the message for today. And I really want to uh, talk about the thing that's on everybody's mind, uh, sports betting in Kansas. <laughs> um, I, 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 no dog in the fight for me. That's a sports betting reference, by the way. And uh, I, um, I just find it interesting ever since uh, sports betting has become legal in Kansas, I've learned a new vernacular. Uh, it kind of happened with crypto last year uh, when everybody at Thanksgiving was talked about all the crypto that, that you buy and what you do with it. This year, it seems like everyone has taught me these words that I used to attribute to Jack Sparrow. Parlay? Really? That's what we're calling these things? Parlays, right? I, after the first service, I had a guy right down here, really great Heartlander, and the last guy I would have thought was, um, you know, spending his time sports betting. And, and he was like, Dan, here's how you do it. And then he un unfurled for me all of these, like, ways to win. And I was like, dude, you don't know me. I lose bets to my nine-year-old daughter. Like, I am not the type of person that, this, this, this is made for me to be, I'm the sucker in this scheme. I'm the one who would give away all of my money. But, but over the past couple of weeks, you know, it's become a thing around here. And, and it's, it's brought with it just phrases that I've never heard before. Uh, parlays, you know, the, the, the bet after the bet. Um, someone was telling me about a push, and I don't really get what that is. The guy was trying to tell me about the... Um, I don't even remember. I, I, I lost what, the, what it's called, but it's like the, the odds when they're the opposite odds. I don't know. You get, someone will tell me later. But, but here's a phrase that I heard the other day that really um, was a sermon in and all of itself to me, and I wanted to bring it to you. Uh, because sometimes in life, God's got a way of putting us in a double or nothing situation. Sometimes in life, we find ourselves where um, we can't go backwards, we have to go forwards. And there's this weird sports betting phrase that I think really sheds light onto this faith principle. It's a weird, it's a weird thing, but it's, it's the... It's the so it's the word press, press. I, I, to truth be told, I learned about a press um, 15 years ago on a golf course. I was meeting with pastors, I promise you, um, pastors who used to be shrewd businessmen. And they told me, it's the only time I've ever gambled in my life, Scout's Honor. Um, the only time I've ever gambled, I didn't even know I was gambling. Um, I was just a sucker. I was the guy who showed up to play golf and these two other pastors were like, hey, let's play this game. And so um, I trusted them and sure enough, we, we went out and first tee box, both of them hit their ball into the water. I was in the fairway and they looked at me and they said, Dan, you should press. I said, well, what's a press? They said, a press is after the bets are played and the action's happening, you're gonna double the bets right now. They said, it's good strategy and of course, I was being sharked, okay? I was like, totally being set up. The first hole, they were setting me up. They're, they're like, it's good strategy if your opponent's ball is in the water or a sand trap or behind a tree to press the other person because that means you've got a better chance of doubling your money. Ignorant 18-year-old me goes, yeah, I press a lot. And I, I truly didn't know I was playing for money. I owed him $45 at the end of the round because after every shot, I would just yell out, press, press. Press. I mean, those guys turn quarters into dollars fast on me. You know, I, um, gambling, I'm talking about it here. It, it's, I, I think we need to be careful whenever we talk about it. It's a little bit like alcohol. Um, I don't know that a little bit is, is harmful, but a lot of it can really ruin your life, you know? And I think uh, sometimes in life, we look at these situations that we're in, and it's a lot, it's a lot like a gamble. It feels a lot like, like a gamble to us where you don't know what's going to happen next and you got you to gotta make a decision. You got to move forward somehow. You got to call a, a, a play. And so you, you got to move forward. And, and I think a lot of us, we realize this, that life is a way of pressing us when we are in the water or in the sand trap or behind the tree, so to speak. We, we have a phrase for this. It's called Murphy's Law. 
I don't know if you've ever called it Murphy's Law. That, like, the law of Murphy is, you, someone applauded Murphy's Law? Is that, seriously? <laughs> Murphy's Law is the worst. So like Murphy's Law is the, the law that if something bad can happen, it will, right? But here's my question for us today. What if these moments of life, when we find ourselves pushed up against the wall, what if these moments when we find that life has actually pressed itself down on us and has put us in a double or nothing situation, where you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know how this trial is going to end up. You don't know what's happening. What if this wasn't Murphy or anything else except that God had a way of putting you in a situation to double your faith? That's the thesis I want to work with today. I, I think that sometimes life has a way of pressing us, that God is behind it, that, that God can be still good in the press because he's working out a doubling of our faith. I want to show this to you from the Bible because this could all just be conjecture from a pastor, but I, I, could, I could go all over the Bible. I thought about, about 20 different stories in the Bible that, that have this principle, but the one that I felt most drawn to is found in the Old Testament. We, I haven't talked about the Old Testament in a long time, so I, don't want, I want to bring us back to the Old Testament to a guy named Elijah. If you've got a phone or a, a Bible, something that looks like this, you can open up to First uh, Kings chapter 17 is where we meet Elijah. Elijah was um, a man who lived 900 years before Jesus. I looked it up the other day to figure out who lived 900 years before we did. And um, Marco Polo, do you guys know that guy, Marco Polo, the explorer? 900 years ago. Jesus, Elijah to Jesus is the same distance as Marco Polo to us. But, but here's something crazy. When Jesus showed up in the world and he walked across the, 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 the region, he was doing these miracles, the best explanation that the people of that day had about who Jesus was is they called him the second coming of Elijah. This guy that lived almost an entire millennium before Jesus. There's something about Elijah that, that prefigured Jesus, that, that showed what God was doing in the world for his people. And Elijah bursts out on the scene. First uh, Kings 17 is where we get introduced to Elijah. All we know about Elijah is that he's from a town, a region called Tishbe in Gilead. Verse one, here's, here's a, Elijah walks into the throne room of King Ahab and here's what he says to him. He says, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. And everybody said, no, 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 no. That's the church answer. You're supposed to give the Jerry Springer answer. The, what? Come on. Oh, sorry, you didn't. Right, you didn't know. You didn't. Sorry if you amen. That was a setup on my part. Or you, why, why is this a throwdown? Why should you have responded like Jerry Springer just gave out paternity test results? Here's why. Because um, what Elijah's doing is storming into the king of Israel's um, throne room and claiming to have the power of the gods. He says there's going to be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. This is a drought. He's, he's saying I'm going to cause a drought. It's like the opposite of Elsa with her endless winter. I'm going to stop the rain by the power of my God. Now today we understand rain to be a natural phenomenon. 
right? There's a uh, extreme drought happening in the, the western part of our country. I'm not sure if you've been tracking with that. If you're a gardener, you probably irrigated a little bit more. I know it rained like crazy last night, but it's, there's a drought. The University of Nebraska has been measuring this, and they've, they've, they've actually said Kansas is one of the most significantly affected areas of the country in this drought. Earlier this year, uh, East Kansas, where we live, was filling up semi-trucks full of water to go dump them into fields in West Kansas. That's how bad it was. Now, um, no one at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln who measures this stuff for the country, no one has yet to posit this theory for why there's a drought. No one has said, you know why we're having a drought? It's because there's this guy in Tishbite called Elijah and he's holding up the rain. Right, because, because we know that humans have no capacity to influence the weather systems. Now, that's not a statement about global warming, all that stuff. I can't make it rain. That's what I'm saying. You can't make it rain. I can't make it not rain. This is actually, um, back in Elijah's day, the power to make it rain, rain was at the pay grade of the gods. I'll say it that way. The gods controlled the rain. And if your God was happy with you, he would bring rain to your land. He would heal your land, it was called, to send flourishing. The economic engine of the country was agriculture. And so rain was the vital nutrient necessary for the people to have economic prosperity. Elijah storms into Ahab's courtroom and he says, I'm gonna, by the power of my God, stop the rain. Now, you can sometimes know how important someone is based upon who they're married to. And um, Ahab, you're not a Bible person, um, Ahab is married to this woman named Jezebel. And everybody said? Listen, ladies, you ever been called a Jezebel? Uh-uh. Uh-uh. To be called a Jezebel is to mean you're a particular woman with a spirit contrary to the ways of God. Uh, it's a pretty offensive thing to be called Jezebel. Jezebel was leading the nation of Israel away from worshiping God, the God of Israel. And she had introduced this worship of this other God, this God from Cana, this, this is a, the, the, the superior, supreme God of Cana was a God named Baal. And Baal was um, the God of of rain, and the God of flourishing, and the God of virility. Baal rode on a bull, and his hand was a scepter of lightning and a cloud of thunder. And the people believed that Baal had the, uh, the, the power within himself to bring economic prosperity through rain to the land. Have you ever seen a bull around our country in a way that would imply economic prosperity? Yeah, you have. Outside the New York Stock Exchange is a picture of what we all want the markets to be like, don't we? Even today, our society sees a bull as a picture of, of something that will bring rewards and excess and prosperity. You don't want a bear. You want a bull. And when that bull starts to cool off and a bear starts to come out, everyone starts grasping for ways to put their hands on the levers of the things that will move the economy back into bull territory. It's the same today as it was all these years ago. 
So now you kind of get the picture when I say that Elijah stepped into the throne room of Ahab, who was a Baal-worshipping king whose job was to manage the economic prosperity of Israel. And he said, as surely as my God lives, the God of Israel lives, I will make sure there's no rain until I say for there to be rain. You kind of get a sense that this is a really big deal. Because Elijah was stepping into the throne room of another king, throwing down the gauntlet to say, double or nothing, my God is stronger than yours. What's interesting about this is that God had sent him in there with a word. Now, I, I think a lot of us are um, walking through this life wondering what God would you have me do? And very rarely, I want to be very, very careful how I say this, I think almost, almost none of us in this room will get a word the same way that Elijah did. Almost none of us. God was that specific for Elijah to say, go to Ahab and tell him that you're going to stop the rain until I want you to send it back. And Elijah walked into that throne room, believing the word of God, trusting the word of God, doubling down on the word of God in the face of those who could care less about God. And he said, as surely as my God lives, there'll be no rain. That'd be like me walking into the, you know, New York Stock Exchange and talking to the people in control and saying, I'm going to make sure every one of those little tickers is going in the red until my God tells me to turn them around to green. I don't, I don't know what you would think about me as a pastor in that moment. You might think, um, can we find another guy to be our pastor, you know, one of our pastors here, because that guy's crazy. I wonder if in that day, Elijah made this declaration to these people, and Ahab probably shuddered for a second, looked around at all of his advisors, and one of them in the corner started to chuckle. Like, who does this guy think he is until the whole entire room, one after another, starts to laugh Elijah out of the place. And Elijah leaves there being mocked for what he believed God was going to do because he had the audacity to have an unwavering commitment to God's word. Elijah doubled down on, on God's word. He said, he said, faith is acting like God's word is true and God has told me something to do, so I'm going to go do that thing. And all around him, it seemed like nonsense. Now, I wonder if you've ever had that specific, maybe not going to a king's courtroom, but have you ever had to stand up for God's word in a way where it cost you something? I think a lot of times in life, we find ourselves pressed by the world and God's word is right there to walk us through the difficulty. But the voices of the world are so loud that we don't commit to what he said. Friends, I, I think today we got to hear this. So if you want to double your faith, you got to double down on God's word. Uh, this is what I love about our church is that as we study God's word, as we dig, as we commit ourselves to, to learning and knowing what does God's word say for us, we can live by faith acting as if what this says is true. And so the weeks go on. And you know what's crazy about agriculture is that plants can survive a long time without having any rain. My front bushes in my house have never been watered. They're still there. 
But soon enough, the weeks turn into months. And what was a summertime that was pleasant turns into an extended dry season. And all of a sudden, Ahab's got a real problem because the crops are distressed and starting to die. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a while for this to occur where all of a sudden the lush green pastures of Israel all of a sudden start to look brown and gold and then finally decrepit and dead. I think it was at that moment that Ahab probably looked around at everybody and said, hey, do you guys remember that crazy dude who came in here telling me that his God was going to stop the rain? What was his name? Elijah? Go find Elijah. But God had already moved Elijah and he was nowhere to be found. Verse 2 says this. Look, look at what verse, or, or yeah, verse 2 said. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Verse 3. Leave here. Turn eastward. And everybody say this word with me. Hide in the Kareth River, ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook. And I have directed the ravens to supply you with, that's, those are the birds, not the Baltimore ravens, by the way. I've directed the ravens to supply you with food there. This is the second time the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And um, the first time he demonstrates courage and conviction and unwavering commitment to God. And this time God is telling him, Elijah, for your own safety, I need you to sacrifice for me a little bit. Uh, no one's going to know where you are. No one's going to see this sacrifice. No one's going to celebrate your faith. But for a season, let me provide for you in a place where you'll be okay. Now, um, I don't know about you, but to be a rainmaker in our language today is a really important thing in our society. It's a coveted position. Not many people are actually rainmakers. In fact, we don't really always know who the rainmakers are. They're just kind of these, these people who make things happen on an international or a global scale. God had anointed Elijah with rainmaking power. And if I could just, um, you know, there's a reason that we have three lead pastors here at Heartland because I know my own heart. And um, just like you, if I had that much power, I would be really tempted to flaunt it. I'd be really, I mean, you'd see me on Twitter. In fact, I, I would have beat Elon Musk to buying Twitter. If I had rain-making power, I would, you know, you'd be acting the billionaire life, making things happen. Saying, everybody gotta, gotta know the power that I have. And God, in his wisdom, he gets Elijah out of the way where both Elijah's own temptation to use the power incorrectly and the people's own fury over what he had done to them wouldn't hurt him. God provided a way for his needs to be met in the midst of the press. And God tells Elijah, double down. I've provided for you out in the Kareth Ravine. Go, go out there. And so Elijah does. He's the first contestant on the show, Alone. Have you ever seen the show, Alone? You guys, not for nothing. It's pretty good. 
It's this, it's this survival show where people go out in the wilderness and they're by themselves. And here's what happens in Alone. Every time that somebody goes out and they've got to survive, they've got to beat everybody else. Uh, they've got to stay in the wilderness the longest. Every time someone goes out in the wilderness the first couple days, it's like heaven to them. They're all pumped. They're like, this is the greatest thing. It's introverts to the extreme. I love not being by anybody. They're making shelters. They're setting up fishing lines. And after a while, the mental pressure of being out in the wilderness by yourself drives you crazy. Your body can't handle the low calorie count that you're putting into it. And so you end up desperate. And God says, uh, I'm going to send you out here. And so this is exactly what he does. Uh, look, at, look at verse 5. So uh, he did what the Lord told him. And he camped beside the Kareth Brook east of the Jordan. I, um, I, wonder, I wonder what this sacrifice felt like to Elijah. To have been in the king's courtroom one moment and then in the wilderness another moment. That first day, I wonder how he felt as he wandered and looked to the skies and said, are the waters here, but are the birds coming? I don't know if you've ever seen birds feed their young, but it's kind of disgusting. And ravens aren't necessarily the cherished bird in the Bible. Ravens are the first bird mentioned in the Bible, but they're the most useless they're the ones that don't ever help humanity. If I've, if I've learned one thing about watching the show alone, it's that nature never works on the side of humans. It's always working against us. And God is saying, hey, come to this, this, this one brook and I'm going to provide for you. And, and Elijah, having trusted his, his unwavering commitment to the word of God, has brought him to this place. And he's, he's, he's looking up at this guy and all of a sudden, wings drop food for him to eat. And morning and evening, every day, the birds come and they provide for him. There's a spiritual lesson here because I think Elijah was eager and ready to show the world how good his God was. And the first step that God did in calling Elijah forward to help him on his war against Baal was to make him wait you know, it's a spiritual principle in life that when God wants to use someone for his good and his glory, he often takes them and he puts them in a crock pot to get ready for the future. Moses was a guy who wanted to help free the Israelites from Egypt. And God said, that's great, Moses, you're gonna do a really great job. First, you need to spend 40 years over here in the wilderness of Midian taking care of your father-in-law's sheep. David was anointed to be the king at a young age, but God gave him decades serving another king and being a shepherd. I mean, even Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life making untold sacrifices to God in obscurity. We have zero record of what that was like. And then the record that we do have, the first thing that the Spirit God did in, in, in Jesus' life was to take him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For 40 days, he gave up food. It's a principle in our lives that when God wants to use you in this life, he often will put you in a place to have a private victory before you ever see a public victory. And I think so many of us have this desire to be used by God. Man, that's great. That's awesome. But here's my question. Are we only sacrificing when other people see it? Are we only trusting God in the moments when other people can see the trust? There was absolutely no advantage to Elijah except that in the private moments along the brookside, 
Elijah watched God provide in his life so that in moments in the future when he would need to know if God could be trusted, he had already seen that God passed the test. And I think in the wilderness, God was looking at Elijah saying, Elijah, I've got great work for you to do. I've got, I've got an amazing, you people are, when I send my son, they're going to compare him to you. But first, you need to pass a test. I need to know if you are going to look to me as the provider for you in any and every situation. So many of us, I think, um, get this idea that when God gives us the next step to take in our lives, it's going to put us in a better situation. And Elijah reminds us that God often uses the press to make us double down on him so that our faith can grow. Would you be uh, more inclined to trust God if every day the ravens showed up and gave you the food? Absolutely. I absolutely would. But sometimes, how many people know this? Sometimes the promise that God gave to you has an expiration date. Now, the word of God is eternal, but God leads us through steps for a season. The next verse tells us that sometime later, this is verse seven, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. It's really funny because um, Elijah stopped the rain and then the supply of water that he was needing dried up. The very thing that God called him to do was now putting him in a perilous situation. And so here's, here's verse eight. The word of the Lord came to him again and said, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Now, if I was Elijah and God uh, had dried up the water and then his voice came to me again, I would really hope he would say, now is the time, Elijah. Use your words. Say, rain. And this will all be over. But Elijah is told to take another step into the, gosh, this is such a Disney phrase, but into the unknown. To go across political boundaries to Zarephath. Zarephath, I don't have time to get into this, but it's a word that really means the refinery. It's a place of trial and testing. It wasn't even in Israel. It was a foreign city. Go across the borders. Go out of state and find not Warren Buffett, right? Like if, if, if God was like, I've told Warren to set a table for you, you'll be taken care of. It'd be one thing, but God says, I've got a widow that I've placed an order for pickup for you at. It's under the reservation, Elijah, just go find her. You'll be taken care of. And so Elijah sets out away from the safety of what God had provided him. He's thirsty and hungry. He's probably covered in mud because when you don't have water, you don't clean yourself. And he walks 75 miles. And all of a sudden, he finds himself at the gate of Zarephath. There's a woman out gathering some sticks. And he speaks to her and he says, um, can, can you get me a cup of water? In fact, what he actually says, he says, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I can have a drink? Um, God had told her, God had told him, you'll find a woman, a widow, and um, I've prepared for you. And when he gets there, he finds a woman. And Elijah, I'm sure, is testing to say, God, is this the woman that you provided for me? And she looks at him and says, you want some water? Uh, we've only got a little because there's a drought. But okay, you look thirsty. And this woman, to his delight, she turns around and she starts to go off to fetch him the water. 
And if it wasn't enough, the imposition that Elijah was already putting on her, he stops her in her tracks and he doubles down on his request. I mean, this is the ultimate press of all presses. Elijah looks at this woman and says to her, if it isn't, if it, if it isn't too much trouble, this is the next verse, uh, would you bring me please a piece of bread? Um, ever, ever since the moment God's word came to him and he went to Ahab's court, God had provided in a frictionless way for Elijah. Everything God said happened. The rain stopped just like God said. The ravens came just like God said. And he left to go to Zarephath just like God said. And all of a sudden he gets to this moment where he's really trying to figure out where is my food coming from? God told me it was here. And, and, and for the first moment he hits a stumbling block. Because this woman turns around and says, well, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but you're asking the wrong person for some help. Because see, what I'm doing here is I'm gathering some sticks for a fire. I've only got about a handful of bread and a little bit of oil in my jar. What, what I'm fixing to do is I'm going to my house to make my last meal and give it to my son who depends upon me for his life. And then after that, it's all we have left. And I, I think I'm going to die. Um, I've never, I don't think you've ever been in this situation where you just, maybe you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from, but you kind of thought there's food out there. We as a church um, take food insecurity incredibly seriously. This past year, we, we've invested um, close to $100,000 by my account towards feeding people across the globe. Do you remember back in January, we packed 100,000 meals for people in Ethiopia and Kenya? And we paid to ship that, to, to, to fly that food over to people who really needed it because this is unacceptable in our world. And we, um, as the war in Ukraine broke out, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars making sure that people in Ukraine have food and supplies. Uh, once a month, uh, at the backside of this building, we provide an incredible service to people who need food, fresh food, good food. And our church, we've served countless homes throughout the region. Every Sunday, there's a food pantry that's open on the backside of our building because we believe that everybody should have food. And Elijah has been told that God has placed his order, you know, sort of an ancient Uber Eats. But the woman doesn't seem to know that God had placed the order. Like God had said, I've made provision. I've ordered a woman, a widow to provide for you. And then he gets there and the widow says, I'm so sorry. I've got nothing for you. I don't know if you've ever been in that position. Maybe you've never um, experienced that type of hunger, but have you ever prayed your way through a situation where your back was up against the wall and God gave you something only to have that something come, come to find out it was nothing? I talked to a young man after the first service and he was telling me that he worked his whole entire four, ways, four years through college and, and his first job out of college, this dream job that he thinks he wants, he feels dead because of it. No idea where to go, no idea what to do. Just wants something that's going to provide for him and help him feel alive. I remember, not to make this about me, but I remember Kristen and I ha have a, a long history of car, car problems, which is funny because my dad's a car guy. And um, 
I had never really had a car that worked. And by uh, the time that we were having kids and whatnot, we kind of realized this is no way to live. We should really invest in a vehicle that's going to have some staying power, some longevity. And so we, we found a car that had um, way less than the 100,000 miles. I thought that's when cars started in all the cars I'd driven prior to this. So we found one that was like, you know, way less than that. And it was like three times more expensive than anything we'd ever bought. And just felt like this is the responsible thing to do. We just want to be able to provide for our kids. I remember um, picking this car up and... Um, this is a true story. This is a real prayer that I prayed on the way home. I was so glad. I was so happy. I was like, God, this is an awesome car. Thank you so much for this, that we have the means to pay for this. I remember praying this. Down I-65, right outside Lafayette in Indiana. I said, God, I want this car to die in our family. <laughs> now, I probably should have put a timeline. I was thinking like 25 years, God, could I get 25 years? I mean, it is a really good car. It's one of those Japanese cars that everybody tells me is going to live for millions of miles and 25 days. I remember like it was yesterday, uh, Kristen starting the car up in the parking lot of our church and the smoke coming out of our engine as it died. Just over, it was like the Shekinah glory of God had come and filled the parking lot. I looked out the front door and I realized what was happening and I looked at my friend and I said, I think I've got a car problem. He goes, I think you got a car problem. We took it back to the dealer and they denied the problem. We appealed to a higher authority in corporate and they said, that's technically under warranty, but we're not going to do anything about it. And I felt trapped. I was like, God, you provided for us this, this thing that was supposed to be great. And yet here I am and I'm more impoverished now because of it. What are you up to? Why? Why are you pressing me like this? I don't know if you've got a situation like that that you've walked through or you've come through where a job fell out of your life in a way where you were like, well, I don't, I don't get that. I don't know how I'm going to move forward or, or a health problem hit your life where you, you didn't think you were going to come back from it in any substantial way. What do you do when life presses you? You do what Elijah did which was to demonstrate again his unwavering commitment to the word of the Lord. Look at what he says back to this desperate woman. He looks at her and she sees desperation, but he also sees dignity. I want you to see this. Elijah, knowing full well what God has promised for him, says to her, you're not on your last meal. You're about to make your first. Look at what he says. He says, don't be afraid. Go home. Do as you've said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have. Bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. And so this woman goes. She, she, she hears these words of Elijah. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the land. Elijah looks at this woman and says, listen, I've been given a promise that I want to share with you. And even though I don't know you, and even though I might not have chosen to partner with you, I believe God in this moment of my life is doubling down on this unlikely partnership that he's going to use to provide for me. Double or nothing faith often brings us into unlikely partnerships. Let me finish the car story for a second because um, the, the, the mechanics wouldn't touch the thing. And the national office was ignoring the whole thing. It was weeks of stress and anxiety for me not only embarrassed by what I had done with so much money and how a guy whose dad was a car guy could buy such a cruddy car, and 
there's all the shame that was around it, but I didn't know how we were going to pay to get this thing, to get out from underneath this thing. And God found a way to get my story back to a person in my church. Not a car guy, not a mechanic. He was a waste management truck driver, an unlikely partner. He came up to me one day at church. He said, Dan, I know that I'm like the last person that you would think of to bring your car to, but um, I'd like to swap your engine for you for free. Would you just bring it to my shop? He goes, he goes like this. That is such an Elijah thing. He goes, I've got a little house with a little garage. And I remember the day, you remember this day we pulled up to his little house with his little garage and we, we, he just had one car could fit in there because like every other American, his whole life is in his garage. And, and we squeezed that car in there and he lifted a thing up. He started twirling wrenches and his dad came over because he knew what he was doing. And, 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 and all of a sudden, 15 hours later, he calls me up. He goes, it's done. I said, what? He goes, it's done. Come pick it up. Enjoy it. I thought about this um, two days ago as I was driving that car back from Florida. We're driving for 17 hours straight wondering, gosh, God, years ago, this thing was dead. But you brought us the right person at the right time. And God has a way of turning our obstacles into opportunities to praise him. God has a way of taking the little that you're up against and if you put it in his hands and watch him do the thing, he'll use an unlikely person to help you see the flourishing that he's put in front of you. And so she goes, she goes and she takes that flour and she takes that oil and I bet she's crying as she does it. She walks into her kitchen, she takes a handful of flour that she has and the oil and I don't know if she's just like coming to terms with the fact that she's got nothing in the world to give herself, she might as well give this guy something. She starts mixing the two up. And she starts playing patty cake with the words of God and putting them into action. And she puts that into the oven and she goes and she brings it back to Elijah and he eats. And she goes back in the kitchen and she looks and there's a little bit left. And so she takes it and she puts it into another ball, another morsel of bread for her son. I wonder if she's thinking about her husband who had died and the situation she found herself in and the desperation and how crazy it was that here she had enough for two meals after all. And she gave one of them away. And she puts it in the oven and she brings it out. She gives it to her son. She goes back in the kitchen. And the little enough that she had for those two was little enough for her too. She takes the flour, she takes the oil, she puts it together. The whole time I think, this is it. This is the last, this is the end of it. It's not coming back after I make this and we're totally done. And here's what is recorded forever in the words of God as a result of this woman's faith. So there was food. Say this with me. Every day for who? For Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. What do you do when you're pressed by life, when God got you in a situation where your back is up against the wall? You depend unwaveringly upon the word of God. You let him call out whatever sacrifice he needs from you. You partner with the unlikely people. 
And just like this happened for Elijah, look at what happens. It's the, the unlimited supply of what's needed shows up for them. Now, I know, I know, I know. Um, we struggle to believe this could happen. The reason that this type of a message hits us with a little bit of indifference is because we all had a really nice Thanksgiving. We all kind of are okay with providing for ourselves. We haven't ever seen this type of need before. We're fine. And I'd like to propose to us that in, instead of thinking that we're okay and this is for somebody else, I think that those who have excess, it's doubly true that God is putting the press upon us to open our hands to what he would do with the little that we do have. I have this, I have this dream for, for me and for my family. I have this dream for, for us as a church. I have this dream for Heartland that we would be the type of people who see God do miraculous, amazing things, but it, all it takes is for us to double down on God's word and to open our hands. I, um, <laughs> still kind of moved by it. Um, I, I remember the day that, that, uh, Ian, one of the guys on our staff, came to me by my office and asked me to pray for his wife, Stella. Stella was having an incredible uh, health challenge. Honestly, we thought she was going to die. And Ian said to me, he looked at me with tears in his eyes. He said, would you just pray? And I was like, dude, I've been praying. He goes, no, no, like pray now. Would you pray now? And for me, it was one of those like, yeah, I get paid to pray, but I care deeply. I believe that a little bit in God's hands goes a long way. So I'll pray with you right now, dude. I, I wish I could tell you I prayed this like deep prayer of faith. I honestly was like, God, you got to prove this to me because I'm kind of suspect of this one too. This morning, Stella walked through those doors of that church a year after we prayed for her to be able to even just breathe. She sat right behind where you guys are sitting. Her husband sat weeping through this entire message. Why? Because they'd been pressed through life and found that when God presses you, he grows your faith because he does something through you. I love that I get to speak God's words to you and I hope maybe someday you get to speak God's words to other people but I don't know that you know the power of what it's like for me to know your stories because sometimes y'all sit there and you're preaching louder sermons to me as the pastor than I'm preaching to you because I look around and I see God you've always been faithful moments of doubt when I didn't think it could happen you've done it moments where I've myself been up against the wall you've come through why do I doubt? Why do I, why do I not believe? And so I think for us, friends, that what we've sung already today is that all my life you've been faithful, all my life you've been so, so good. It's so true for us in the future that whatever God has for you, whatever he's walking you through, whether it's in the season in private where he's asking you to just trust him and double down on him in private, or he's asking you to step out into the public world to do something for him, I don't know what it is, but God has promised that he will be with you. He will make provision for you and he's got you. Would you just double down on him? Go double or nothing. I think about this as a, as a, a moment for our church, you know, we were in the Stronger Together project. I promise this is not about a message about money. But I think it, it's crazy how 
the unseen sacrifice of someone giving to unlikely partnerships with all of us could provide for us in a way that our church didn't expect. <laughs> Just, it's, is that not like God or what? To say, I can make it rain when you need it. Look, I don't know where you're at. I don't know the crisis you're facing, but I know that God has what you need. I know this because um, that second Elijah who would come, that second Elijah that would come, he'd come on Christmas, they would call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. One of the people who wrote down the, the life of Jesus called him John chapter one, verse one. In the beginning was the word. <laughs> that, that God has a way of sending his word to us when we need it the most. I love God's word because it shows me everything I need to know about Jesus who offers me everything. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't make an unseen sacrifice. He made a public sacrifice in witness of the entire world to pay once and for all for the penalty of our sins, to provide for us the unending provision, the unlimited supply of what was needed for all of us. You know what we call that in the, in the church? We call that um, eternal life. I'm so glad. Because of Jesus, I can have faith in God that says, double or nothing, God, I've got what I need, that you will lead me. You've done it before. I don't need no ravens coming, dropping me off Thanksgiving dinner. I just need Jesus. Give me more of him so I can see more of you. I want you to stand. Here's how I want to close. Thanks for your patience today. Because I think um, no matter how this hits each one of us, we all have this we all have this thing inside of us that just wants to say thank you to God. We did this on Thursday with our families, but I think we need to do it here as a church to say, God, you're providing for us. We've got little, but little is enough when God is in it. It sounds like this. It sounds like, all my life you have been faithful. Come on, sing it with me. All my life you have been faithful. I don't know, um, I don't know what those words in that moment just made you think about, but I've been, I got a spot in my mind where I'm remembering God's goodness. I, do you? I want you to, to just access that for a second. Because God has been so good, right? Here you are today with his breath, an unlikely partnership amongst all of us singing his praises. And this is a double or nothing faith. Come on, one more time, and then we're going to be dismissed. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. faith is acting like God's word is true. Go today. See God provide for you. We love you, Harlan. See you next week.